welcome back to The Bedside, everyone. This is an ATS podcast where we discuss commonly encountered problems in the ICU. So today we're going to discuss a really interesting case and a challenge that I encounter in the ICU, which is the bronchopleural fistula on mechanical ventilation. So to guide us through this challenging topic, we have Dr. Argento from John Hopkins University. Dr. Argento, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. I'm sure our ES community is really going to benefit a lot from what you have to share on this topic. Could you just share a little bit about your story of how you became an expert in in interventional pulmonology? Sure. I did my internal medicine residency and found that I just was really pulled, I think, towards pulmonary and critical care. And I think like most, the allure of critical care and the acuity of disease and stuff really really pulled me towards pulmonary and critical care medicine. So I was, I don't know, lucky or unlucky enough my first month of my pulmonary fellowship to be assigned to work with the brand new interventional pulmonologist that had just joined Yale. And and he really just opened my eyes to this field that I had never heard of before and never been exposed to. And it was sort of love at first sight. <laughs> he really pushed me to, to actually go to some of the interventional pulmonary conferences. So if anybody's interested, that's how I started. I went to the IP days and the, you know, the offerings that were held both at CHEST and at ATS. And I found that these were really my people and these were the topics that I was truly interested in. So from there, I did my interventional pulmonary fellowship at Duke. And then I've sort of found my home eventually, but it took a little bit to find the perfect job. So I started at Emory, where I worked there for two years in interventional pulmonary. I spent six years in Chicago at Northwestern. And then now I've been two years at Johns Hopkins, where I think I've finally found a really good balance between research, some academic work, as well as education and, and clinical work. That's been my story, which is a little bit long and roundabout, but hopefully <laughs> resonates with some other people. That's wonderful. Thanks for, for sharing that. I think a roundabout story is probably how most of us got into where we are today. And on behalf of general pulmonologists everywhere, we are very thankful to have a friendly interventional pulmonologist to, to help us out and, and sometimes bail us out of, of situations. So let's jump right into the case and we'll get your approach to bronchopleural fistulas. So our case today is a 43-year-old woman. So she unfortunately suffered severe ARDS secondary to community-acquired pneumonia. Her hospital course started on the general medical floor and she was treated with appropriate antibiotics and supportive care, but unfortunately had progressive acute hypoxemic respiratory failure for which the MICU team was consulted. And despite optimization of high flow and your other efforts, she unfortunately was intubated. Following her intubation, she continued on appropriate antibiotics and low tidal volume ventilation, had appropriate peak and plateau pressures, but unfortunately developed a right-sided pneumothorax. And on x-ray, there was, there was shines of developing tension with a little bit of midline shift. Patients started developing rapidly progressing hypoxemia. So in response to that, 14 French pigtail catheter was placed in the lateral position and was then set to suction. Post-procedural chest x-ray, there was an appropriately positioned tube. There was resolution of the pneumothorax. But when you're looking over at the 
the drainage system, you notice that there's a quite a few bubbles coming from the chamber. And, and I was wondering if you could maybe just take a step back. And I, I remember when I was in junior fellow, the, the little box at the side of the bed was quite mysterious to me and, and I didn't really know how to look at it or get information from it. So I was wondering if you could just take us through you know, how you approach the trust drainage system. Yeah, I think that's great. This is a pretty typical scenario. I agree with you. It happens fairly regularly in the MICU. So it's really important, I think, for house staff fellows and even faculty who weren't necessarily trained in chest tube management to be familiar at least with the things that you're going to come into contact with on a regular basis. So when I'm looking at the collection system, and there's a, a few different companies that provide them, but they typically have three chambers that you really need to be familiar with. So the first chamber is the easy one. It's the one that collects fluid or blood that drains out of the chest tube from the patient. And so that's going to fill up. If you have a pneumothorax, you're not really going to see air collect there, but everybody produces some pleural fluid. And so that's going to drain into that first collection chamber. The second chamber is the water seal chamber. So you'll notice on most of the collection systems you have to put, there's usually a little bottle of saline that's attached and you, you insert that. It tells you exactly where to do that. And that creates a water seal chamber. And so what that chamber is there for is it allows air to exit from the pleural space as you exhale. It doesn't allow air to go back into the patient's body as you're inhaling. That's the water seal chamber. And then the third chamber is really just to regulate the suction. And you can leave that at no suction, or you can go anywhere from minus 10, minus 20 is what is pretty standard, but you can even go as high as minus 40 centimeters of water. And so typically what we do, if you want to set the suction, which is something that also seems to scare people, your collection chamber is typically set to a negative 20, as I said, that's the standard. And all you have to do is take your wall suction and you attach it to your collection system. There's just, there's only one place to put it. So you attach it there and you put your suction on high continuous. The box will regulate it to negative 20. So you don't have to put it on low or intermittent or anything like that. Just put it on high continuous and the box will do the rest. So that's really how I look at the box. It seems like it's big and complicated. The only other thing that I think is worth mentioning on the box is in that water seal chamber, so where you have the, the saline that you've put in, there's an air leak meter that can be helpful. And it's sort of divided into either five or seven, sometimes chambers, we call them. And they're just listed. They're numbered one, two, three, four, five. And in that air leak meter, you'll see the bubbles going into the different chambers and that will sort of grade your air leak and tell you how big it is. So you can say you have a one, two, three, four, five chamber air leak, depending on how big it is. And so that just gives us a little bit more information about your air leak. So I'd say that's for the most part, how I look at the collection system and how I interpret it. That's really helpful, and I think a great a great description of how the collection system works, and and then also to set it initially following you know the, the drainage of a of a pleural space. One thing that uh, that I might add in is that the there's also a little orange bobber, for lack of another term, that will be collapsed when the system's not on suction, and then when it's on suction, will will spring outward, so you can tell from the door whether your tube is on suction or or not. Yeah, excellent. 
So here, when we have the bubbling and looking a bit closer, we're set to negative 20. There is the two bison suction and there's an intermittent three chamber error leak. So to me, that's saying that when the patient is getting positive pressure ventilation, air is coming from the trachea through the small airways into the alveoli and then into the pleural space because there's some communication between the lung and the pleural space. And then it is subsequently draining into the collection system and then manifesting as bubbles that are coming out so that we can see. And so how severe would you say this problem is? Or, or how do you approach kind of the, the severity of the issue when you're thinking about the bronchopleural fistula? Is, is it just by looking at the chamber and how malic there is or a combination of that with the imaging or, or how do you approach that? Yeah, so that's another great question. Most of us, I would say, were, would follow the, the grading system that Dr. Cherpolio had published about. And what he gave it was sort of grades one through four, and they are an in increasing severity of your air leak. So grade one air leak would be on forced exhalation only. So if you're asking the patient, if they're not intubated, to cough or to talk, and you see bubbling in the in the air collection chamber, that's a forced exhalation air leak. And you can say single chamber, two chamber, whatnot, based on where the bubbles go on the system. But that would be a grade one air leak. A grade two air leak is seen on exhalation only. So as the patient's just tidal breathing, as they're exhaling, you might see an air leak, again, the bubbling in the chamber, and you can grade it according to how many chambers the bubbles go to. So that's a grade two air leak. The grade three air leak is on inhalation only. So as the patient's inhaling, again, you can grade it with the bubbles in the different chambers. And grade four would be a continuous air leak. So that's on inhalation and exhalation. And it doesn't matter. It's just continuous throughout the respiratory cycle. The continuous ones tend to be the biggest air leaks, the ones that are going to take the longest to resolve. Understood. So it sounds like the grading is for spontaneously breathing patients, correct? It is for the, for the most part, that's how we use it, but you can even do it if the patient's on mechanical ventilation. So you can still look at the inhalation exhalation phase of the ventilator. So when it's giving a breath or pulling, allowing the patient to exhale, you can still evaluate on your collection system at that point as well. So you can still get a sense, is it continuous or is it intermittent, meaning during either inspiratory or expiratory phase. And forced exhalation is certainly harder. If the patient's on mechanical ventilation, you're not going to be able to get that. That makes a lot of sense. And so I'm interested in, in how we can approach getting the lung to heal. I think in, in this case right now, we're relieved that the lung has fully expanded. I guess that's kind of step one in my mind is can we get the lung back up, which it seems like a small bore chest tube has done that. And now we just have a continued communication between the lung and the pleural space. So what's our best chance of getting this to heal? So I think everything was done exactly the way I would do it in this case, right? So starting with a small bore chest tube and you've gotten the lung to fully re-expand, you're now on suction. So now I would say, you know, if your patient is still on mechanical ventilation, there's sort of some wiggle room there and it's not a set protocol, but I would try taking the patient off suction and see how they do on water seal. 
There is some data out there to suggest, though there are some inconsistencies, depending on which study you're reading, that placing a patient to water seal will actually help them heal their fistula sooner than if you keep them on continuous suction with their chest tube. So ideally, we want to get the patients there. The controversies have been in management that everybody wants to have a completely resolved pneumothorax. And although I understand that, what we need to do is sort of go back to a lot of things we do in medicine and think really just about how is your patient doing and not so much about what the x-ray is exactly doing. And what I mean by that is if you place your patient on water seal and they are doing exactly the same clinically, even if they reaccumulate a small pneumothorax, I think that's okay. And I would leave that patient on water seal to continue progressing on to removing the chest tube eventually. And that's been a change in practice. We used to sort of, the second their x-ray changed and they would reaccumulate a small pneumothorax, we would put them back on suction immediately and keep trying. But there are some papers out there showing that if you put the patient back on suction, that you're increasing that flow of air from the lung through the fistula into the pleural space and then into the chest tube and chamber, et cetera. And so you're sort of prolonging that air leak over time. And so it may be worthwhile accepting a small pneumothorax and not full expansion of the lung by allowing the patient to go to water seal, sort of decreasing the flow of air through that fistulous tract and allowing it to heal a little bit faster over time. So that's been something that's that changed over time and the literature is trending towards that. And so it's really about looking at the patient. And when your patient's on mechanical ventilation, that's obviously going to be a little bit more tricky, right? Because of the mechanical ventilation, the positive pressure, you may end up really rapidly expanding that pneumothorax where your chest tube can't keep up, in which case you would probably put them back to suction. And if that's still going to overwhelm your chest tube and the flow of air, then you may consider a larger bore chest tube at that point. I would say our patients that have pretty significant ARDS and fibrosing of the lungs, that does tend to happen and, and is required. So I would say the fastest way to getting your patient to heal their, their fistula and resolve their air leak is to really try and get them to water seal if you can. That's a great explanation. It makes a lot of sense. I love the the idea of don't treat the image, treat the patient. That tiny pneumothorax is, is probably not causing a problem and, and monitoring your gas exchange and your ventilator mechanics and hemodynamics and tolerating a little pneumothorax to encourage healing. For folks who may not know, and maybe because I was slightly uh, scarred as a first rotation fellow when my attending asked me to put the chest tube on water seal. I didn't know how to do that. And so I was trying to Google it and I, nothing helpful was coming up. And I remember just very nervously finding our critical care nurse practitioner. I was like, oh, I can ask her anything. And I asked her, can you help me put this chest tube to water seal? And she kind of gave me a strange look and she was like, sure. Do you want me to do it? And I was like, no, I want you to show me how to do it. And so she very kindly walked me to the bedside and then just just pulled the wall suction off the collecting system. And so that's that's all it is. If, if people don't know, I now know. So don't be embarrassed if you didn't know that. You were in good company with me. 
but that is that is how you you get to water seal and that will allow the air out and not back in embarrassing confession that happened to me too to be fair (laughs) (laughs) that's a relief that's a that's a big relief to know so i've heard a lot of different takes on this and i'm curious to know yours mode of mechanical ventilation I've heard people say pressure control encourages the lung to heal more than a volume control mode. What's your take there? Yeah, I think I think that's really provider or system specific. I think a lot of places are comfortable with volume control and other places are really much more comfortable with pressure control ventilation. I don't know that it really makes a difference. I think what you want to do is try and decrease things like your inspiratory time, your end expiratory pressures, your tidal volumes as much as you can. I think those will limit the airflow through that fistula and allow it to heal. And again, that's going to be all dependent on what your patient is going to tolerate. Like how much lung disease do they have? How bad is their ARDS? Do they have other things going on with their lung function, et cetera, that are going to allow them to tolerate such maneuvers? So twofold is you want to decrease the stimuli for air to move across that connection between the lung and the pleural space. And then you also want to decrease the pulling um, on the other side of in the pleural space so that the lung can, can heal. Exactly. I think any pressure you can remove from that fistulous tract, whether it's on the pleural side or on the lung side, is going to help it to heal. So in our case, we followed those recommendations. We tried to get the patient to water seal, tried to limit the inspiratory time, the tidal volume, and the PEEP to kind of decrease the flow across that communication. But unfortunately, we're continuing to have issues with it. And in fact, the the pneumothorax is getting bigger and it's unfortunately um, affecting the patient's gas exchange. She's having more difficulty maintaining her oxygenation, which is leading to more ventilator support, which is worsening our air leak. And so is this someone who you would upsize the chest tube in? So you definitely can. As you're thinking about this, there are three, maybe four things that you want to consider. Things that I think about in the order of priority is the volume of the air leak, how long has it been there, and what is it doing? So what is the trend? Is it getting better over time or is it getting worse over time? And then the fourth is probably the etiology, right? So is it a spontaneous pneumothorax that happened? Is it because this patient had underlying lung disease, like very bad COPD or emphysema? Did they have a terrible infection that led them to have this pneumothorax or was it a surgical intervention? So all of these things are risk factors. So what what led to this persistent air leak in the first place? And so how quickly do I think this is actually going to resolve? And so how do I go through my algorithm to decide whether they need a larger chest tube to be on suction for a bit of a longer time So sometimes we opt for a second small bore chest tube, so another 14 French. However, if we think it's just getting overwhelmed and maybe the lung is too stiff at this point to fully expand, then we do consider upsizing the tube. My go-to is either a 20 or 24 French. Some people go even larger. I'm not sure that there's much benefit to going to a 28 or a 32 French tube. So we make that call based on maybe where the air is accumulating, where the first chest tube is located. So could you put it in 
an ad, you know, another small bore tube in an advantageous position where maybe the two tubes working together would be fine. You know, the smaller bore tubes, I think, are nice just because they're pretty easy to place. They have low complications, and the patients report that they're tolerated better, meaning that there's less pain on insertion while the chest tube is in place and also on taking them out. So I would say there's a lot of people that also don't have the expertise to put in the larger bore tubes. And again, those are more painful and they tend to be just a little, you know, a little tricky if you don't have a lot of experience with them, putting them into patients who are on mechanical ventilation. However, I place those a lot. So we either go for a second small bore chest tube or a large bore chest tube at this point, which is anything over a 14 or a 16 French in caliber would be considered a large bore chest tube. Understood. So you may, depending on x-ray where the air is accumulating, we have a, a 14 French chest tube in the, in the lateral space. You may consider putting a, a chest tube anteriorly. And as a non-interventionalist, the safe places I think of to put small board chest tubes are kind of in the uh, the lateral triangle of safety, you know, of course, using ultrasound to confirm that that area is indeed safe. And then anteriorly in the midclavicular line in the second intercostal space, and then also using ultrasound and also anatomic landmarks to kind of place tube an- anteriorly. That may change with, with more expertise and, and being a little more adventurous in your in your placement, but are those kind of the, your, your two go-to positions, Dr. Argento? Those are absolutely my go-to locations. So certainly anteriorly, maybe you extend down to the third intercostal, but it's really the second is the, is the typical one that we aim for, always using ultrasound to guide us. The triangle of safety, as you mentioned, with your pectoralis muscles, your latissimus dorsi muscles, and then sort of that nipple line to be the bottom and the apex being your, your, your armpit or your axilla. That's certainly the safest place to go. Sometimes, you know, depending where that pneumothorax is located, you might use ultrasound to guide you either a little lower or a little bit more posterior. So ultrasound has given us a little bit more freedom but we know that the neurovascular bundle is underneath the lower portion of the rib in that triangle of safety more consistently. And so, so ideally you're placing tubes kind of there, but if the first tube, let's say is, you know, if it's placed laterally, often it will go down towards the diaphragm that just tends to, to go that way pretty naturally. And so if your chest tube sort of sits more basilarly, maybe you need that anterior chest tube that's going apically to try and help you clear that pneumo. Or alternatively, if your chest tube went went up and went apical, maybe you need something down towards the base of the lung if you've got pretty significant ARDS to try and clear that air. So sometimes, again, that second chest tube can be quite helpful. But otherwise, like I said, that surgical or larger bore chest tube, which they do have some Seldinger tubes that you can place that that can be pretty easily positioned and placed as well. But again, using that more familiar Seldinger technique can be good. 
Wonderful. One other thing that I was thinking about is that we often see patients who are obese and the nipple line may not be in the same place you think it is. And so one thing I'm always cognizant of is making sure I'm finding the diaphragm in that lateral triangle of safety space, because once you go above the diaphragm, you eliminated uh, one of the big party fouls, which is of course putting a, a chest tube below the diaphragm, which is obviously not what you, you want to do. Yeah has definitely helped us in that regard, right? That if you can always find the diaphragm. And I would say, like, if you're looking at somebody who's post-surgery, those diaphragms can actually be quite elevated too. So that's a really good point is to try and always identify the diaphragm on, on ultrasound. I like that. Wonderful. Well, we spend a lot of time talking about, about tubes, which of course are, are the mainstay of therapy. Now, at what point in, in a case like this would you start thinking about interventions outside of chest tubes or ventilator maneuvers? I've heard of things like endobronchial valve placement. I've heard about blood patches. I've heard about surgery. At what point in patients' course do you start thinking about those more advanced interventions? Yeah, so we don't have a ton of guidelines to really guide us. So we have the guidelines from CHEST in 2001. And we have the British Thoracic Society guidelines from 2010. I would say those are the most recent ones that we have. But again, those are pretty old at this point. And they really talked about very conservative management, primarily with chest tubes being in place for at least four or five days. And then if it was persistent, considering surgery. And that was basically it because that's what was available essentially at those times. Now what we see is some alternative treatments that do have some evidence behind it. So our general practice is a persistent air leak is really defined as having an air leak for greater than five to seven days, depending on, on which literature you're reading. So that's when we start thinking about other interventions. So really we think about chest tube before then, and then at that four to five day mark is when we start thinking about other things. So whether that's upsizing the chest tube, if those we don't think are going to work, I think most of us would go from least invasive to most invasive, as is our sort of common practice. Obviously, if it's a surgical patient, they've just had surgery, I would say most of the time the surgeons are pretty reluctant to take them back to surgery, though every now and again, they would want to do that. So you might want to give them that right of first refusal, especially if it's their surgical patient. But otherwise, the way we tend to approach it is a blood patch first. And, and there's decent literature out there to suggest that that can be helpful. Most of it is in sort of small case reports and case series, but there was a recent systematic review that was published in 2022 in the Annals of Thoracic Surgery that I thought was really helpful. And it looked at, you know, eight of the larger studies looking at blood patches. And I, I think it was really helpful. There was about 150 patients overall, and they found that the blood patches went in typically between day five and day 11. The way you do a blood patch is you take anywhere from 25 to 250 mLs of the patient's own blood. I would say most people use between 50 to 100 or 150 cc's at most, but there are those extremes on either end. So you collect their own blood and then you're going to insert it sterilely through their chest tube and then you'll flush it with about 10 cc's just to make sure that all the blood is out of the tube because you really don't want to create a clot within the chest tube and then it's 
clogged or essentially as if the chest tube is no longer there and you may end up with attention pneumothorax at that point. So that's nothing that you want. So you insert your blood through the chest tube, you flush it through the chest tube with another 10 cc's. And then you can do one of two things. You can either clamp that tube, which means either turning the three-way stop cock off towards the patient, or you can use, if you're using a larger tube, you can use the little blue clip that's on the collection chamber and you can just close that off so that it's sealed. The problem with kind of clamping your chest tube to allow the blood to go in and circulate is that you may end up with attention pneumothorax and you really don't want that in these patients. So I would say most of us at this point tend to just sort of raise the, the chest tube tubing so that it's elevated. So you either put it on an IV pole or a drip pole or whatnot so that it stays open, but it's higher than the chest of the patient so that your blood is going to go flow into the chest, but air can still escape out and you don't have that risk of tension pneumothorax. So I would say most of us do that. And you tend to leave it like that for anywhere from 30 minutes to 24 hours. I would say most of us leave it for an hour or two. And then there's various methods. You can just let the patient lay there or you can have them sort of move around sort of like we do with pleurodesis to try and get the blood to sort of disperse throughout the chest cavity. And, and honestly, people have had really good results with that. So it's about an 89% success rate, according to that systematic review. And in the literature, you see sort of around, always hovering around that 90% success rate with a blood patch. There's also a few studies that will repeat a blood patch. So a couple of days later, if it didn't work the first time, they'll try it again, just because it's so not invasive to the patient. And for the most part, complications are pretty minimal. The complications that are described for blood patches include like fevers and pneumonia. There's a case, one case of empyema that happened with that, but most of the time it's really small things that happen. Most people don't have any problems with blood patches. So that I would say is sort of a first go-to approach. The second thing we would do would be to consider valves. And so there are these one-way valves that we would consider for patients at that time. And what you would do is you order them. Typically they come uh, next day. <laughs> so, and then you're going to do a bronchoscopy. The caveat with the valves is you have to be able to see the air leak in the collection chamber so that you know where to place your valves. Because for the most part, um, these patients, you don't, you haven't exactly isolated the air leak. You don't know exactly where it's coming from. So if you don't have an air leak with bubbles in your collection system, um, you don't know how to isolate that specific air leak and you don't know where to place the valves. And you don't want to place valves everywhere because then you'll just block air going into the lung in every place and your patient will not do any better. So in order to place valves, we do a bronchoscopy. You're going to use a balloon to occlude various parts of the airways to try and isolate that leak. And generally speaking, you're going to know which side it's on, right? Because the side your chest tube is on. And then, you know, if they've had surgery, you have a better idea of where the air leak is going to be. Otherwise, sometimes imaging can help you. If they had one big bleb or whatnot, you might say it's, it's coming from that area of the lung. But sometimes if they have pretty significant lung disease, you don't know where the, where the air leak is going to be. So you use a balloon to occlude different, different parts of the airways and try and isolate the leak. 
And if you can isolate the leak, meaning when your balloon is inflated and you're covering that area, the leak stops in your collection chamber, then you know that you can place valves. And we place anywhere from one up to maybe 10 valves in the different airways. They come in various sizes. So you're gonna size the airways and place the valves to fully occlude. They're one-way valves, and meaning that as you inhale, the valves do not allow air to go through that airway you know, and then into the lung and, and consequently get into the pleural space and into your chest tube. But they sort of retract a little bit as you're exhaling. So they do allow for secretions and such to escape out of the lung, get into your bronchial tube so that you can, you can expectorate, meaning that you won't get post-obstructive pneumonias from these valves. So they are pretty safe in that respect. And those tend to also be pretty successful. We tend to leave them in for six weeks and then remove them afterwards. But when we place them, for the most part, we want to see a minimum of a 50% reduction in that air leak as far as the collection chamber is concerned. I would say at least half of patients probably fully resolve their air leak with placement of valves. The other 50% probably have a reduction, and within a few days, they've essentially resolved their air leak, and you can remove the chest tube and send them home. Again, we leave the valves in for six weeks and then we bring them back for bronchoscopy and then take the valves out. Some patients don't want it because they're approved by the FDA, but under a humanitarian device exemption, which just means that they are not placed commonly enough to have enough data to fully approve them. And so typically there is an IRB at the institutions that place them and patients will have to sort of go through a bunch of paperwork with you sign the consent form that this is under this form of exemption. They know that there's not extensive study, but to be fair, we have years and years of data showing that they're safe and effective. If your lung does fully expand, you can consider pleuridesis and there are various agents you can use. Talc is shown to be the most successful, but you can also use things like iodine. I know talc has sometimes been in back order or low supply, and so iodine's been used. Things like doxycycline have been used, minocycline, tetracycline. There's a whole bunch of other pleurodesis agents that you can that you can use. But talc really has the most data and the most evidence to support that it is well tolerated and pretty effective. And so that can be used as well for pleurodesis, even though we used to sort of shy away from that. In patients with persistent air leaks, we don't really do that anymore. So we do pleurodese at this point for these patients. And then finally, we think about surgical options where the, the surgeon will take them, try and isolate the air leak, and they will also pleurodese in the operating room as well. But again, that tends to be more invasive. And I would say not only the patients, but even the surgeon's sort of shy away from that. A lot of these patients are not the best surgical candidates. They either have pretty significant lung disease or ARDS or significant infections, or they've just had a recent surgery. So they, for the most part, are not ideal going for surgery. And so I think there's been a shift away from that for the most part and trying these more conservative measures to begin with and then using surgery as sort of more of a last resort option. 
What a wonderful summary of the options. I have, I have one question going back to, to specifically blood patches and patients who've maybe had like a pneumonia or another infection. One concern I've had with that is infection related to putting blood into the pleural space. Can I ask, how do you assess whether someone's infection has resolved enough to safely put blood in? Because many patients that get these pneumothoraces, there's someone who had the bad pneumonia. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think that's a tough one, right? We don't always know exactly when the infectious part is getting better. I think if you can see clinically they're turning the corner, then I think it's probably safe. To be fair, all of these options are not ideal if you have an infected space and ongoing sepsis and infection, right? So inserting blood, not ideal. Inserting an extra chest tube, not ideal. Placing valves, even though they do allow you to expectorate and things like that, you still worry about post-obstructive pneumonias in those patients and accumulation of secretion sort of behind the valves. And then obviously taking somebody to surgery when they have active infection is also less than ideal. So I think you're sort of in these patients who have really significant infections, you're always sort of between a rock and a hard place. So we probably tend to leave those in, in real-time practice, though not really what's described in the literature. We tend to leave them maybe a little bit longer just with the chest tube in place to see if their air leak will resolve on its own. So maybe you leave those patients instead of five to seven days, you leave them seven to 10 days. And if that air leak is getting better, Maybe you just leave them with the chest tube and don't consider other options. But if they aren't getting better and the leak is pretty significant, then I think you probably take the risk at that, made that later mark to say, okay, hopefully the infection's cleared enough that we can, that we can do one of these other things. But I think, you know, to your point, all of them increase your risk when you have pretty bad infection there. Wonderful. Well, well, thank you so much. This has just been fascinating to me. So thank you so, so much for coming on the show. It was lovely having you. I think our listeners are going to really appreciate your thoughtful approach to this problem. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks again for having me. It's really been fun. Wonderful. Well, well, we'll wrap up and we want to also thank the American Thoracic Society and remind everyone that this case and discussion are for educational uses only and that the opinions presented here represent um, only our own and don't necessarily represent that of the American Thoracic Society or our respective institutions. Thank you so much for listening in and we hope to see you next time. Bye-bye.